You are listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We realize a lot of secondary educators have students in their classrooms who weren't taught to read and might have a difficult time accessing secondary texts and tasks. Today we'll be talking with Sherry Sousa and Julie Brown from Woodstock, Vermont, about intervention at the secondary level. What does it look like? How do we make it happen? Our biggest takeaway is that this work is doable. Let's dive into this important topic. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are so excited today because we are going to talk about a secondary intervention that works and it's absolutely doable, which is my most favorite part of it. Melissa, I I know you're excited for this conversation because you are our secondary person. Yeah, this is my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so excited. And we have two incredible guests today. So we have Sherry Sousa and Julie Brown from Woodstock, Vermont. And Sherry has worked for many years with adolescents with disabilities, and she is currently the superintendent of Windsor Central Super Supervisory Union. It's a mouthful, Sherry. <laughs> and then we also have Julie, who we met at the Reading League conference. So exciting. Yep. We had um, lunch together. It was very yes. serendipitous. <laughs> and she's had, of course, many roles. She's been a structured literacy teacher, a literacy facilitator, an EL coordinator, a special educator. There's probably more that's not on that list. <laughs> she's done it all. And she's currently a doctoral student at one of our favorite programs, Mount St. Joseph University, um, studying reading science. So Super exciting. Lots of knowledge. Can't wait to jump in. Yeah, Sherry and Julie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. We appreciate being invited. Very much so. What an honor to be with you. Yeah, well, we know you've both had lots of experience with secondary students. Lots and lots and lots. Can you tell us a bit about what concerns you saw with reading and writing? So I think the story begins when begins when I started here almost 30 years ago, and I was joined the faculty first time as a public school teacher, working with some of our students with the most emotional challenges. And what I noticed right from the beginning that often these students were in my classroom working with me, not because of organic or trauma emotional disorders, but because they couldn't read and write, and as a result. It's better to be the student acting out than the student who can't read. And so they were with me because they had those deficits. They were in middle school and high school, and they were so used to failing in that environment. And so that began my journey. I, over time and working in our middle school and high school, noticed the number of students who were coming in, entering seventh grade at a primary, pre-primary reading level. And I thought, how can they ever be successful on this campus? with such deep skill deficits. How can I put them in a traditional literacy class, English class, social studies class, when they could not access the curriculum? And even though many were very bright, understood, had the vocabulary, knowledge base, could not communicate that knowledge in writing. And so that's when we began, or I began the journey to think about how do we make sure we're addressing those skills? So not only if they have emotional challenges, 
but academic challenges, how do we make sure this is a place where they belong, they're cared for, and we address all their needs, not just one component of it? We couldn't fix one part without addressing the other part. Yeah, we love that you saw that connection because I think sometimes they're treated separately, right? You have academics over here and then you have behavior happening over here. Um, But I love that you just saw intuitively that these behaviors are because of (laughs) what's happening over here with reading. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We do not want to look foolish in front of our peers, middle school, high school. We want to be competent. Competency is critical yeah. to social self-image, especially at that age point. And if you Definitely don't have in middle skills, school, <laughs> you're always feeling on the outside. And if you can't read and write, you're definitely on the outside. And luckily, I found a partner with that commitment in Julie Brown. Well, while Sherry was um, seeing this at school, I was seeing this at home. Like so many in this space, um, one of my own children struggled with reading, learning how to read. And we were able to get him this life-changing instruction called structured literacy. And reading research should come with a warning. Caution can known to be addictive. Because one research paper led to the next. How did this work so well for my son? Look at so many things in his life that have changed because of this instruction. So one um, paper after another, and I found myself back in school learning how to help as many students as possible master these skills they need to succeed at school. Yeah. Can I jump in really quickly and ask, uh, we talked about this on the pre-call, but we know that kids, they're hurting when they can't read. And I think what you two mentioned that struck me is that the status quo for intervention at the secondary level was unacceptable. And I think one of you used the word disrespectful. I'm wondering if you'd like to share a little bit just to ground our listeners in what you saw happening at the secondary level for intervention and, and just what your thoughts were about what was happening in that space before we kind of move on. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. I think what we saw were was not our best work. We, we saw that standards were not being met and expectations. Our best teachers were not working with our most fragile students. And if we expect our students to do this hard work, that after so many years, at least seven years of failure, to have the vulnerability to really engage in very challenging uh, work that they see organically happening for everyone else, and why not me? We really have to create an environment. One, we have to um, acknowledge the shame and hurt of that experience for them. We have to acknowledge how teachers in the past had not met their needs because they didn't have the skills or knowledge or experience. And I think once we created that common ground of respect and understanding, appreciating what they would have to do to address it at this point in time, then we were able to do the work. And and we'll talk more. We've tried many different ways of intervention. We talked about, you know, we, we worked in our resource rooms with caring special educators that did not have that expertise in reading and writing. That is not the background. That's not how our secondary special educators are prepared. And so they didn't, they had best intentions. They did not have the skill set. We tried to do the work one-on-one. Again, we know in middle school and high school, peer culture is really critical. Having a shared experience, having partners in the heavy lifting, that was really, and we weren't able to do that. Yeah, I 
I don't know if you want to dig in even more to that. That was where we were going to go next because I loved in the pre-call when you all talked about, because I know everyone wants to hear what you all did, right? Like, cause you, you, you right now have something that's working, but I think we learned so much from, I mean, I'm going to say failure. I don't want to like call you guys a failure, but I think we learn from when things don't go well, you know, that's a, that's a great learning. And I, I would love for you all to share some of those learnings you had along the way of things you tried that didn't work. I think people, it's really, really powerful for, for people to hear that. Yeah, and we tried the typical models. We tried resource rooms where students were working in small clusters where with grades, similar groupings and disability groupings. Students did not want to work in these skills with their other peers who were working on homework assignments. We called it homework hotel, where students were just so hyper-focused on getting that assignment done for the next day that having a time to do the intervention, to address those skills that were deficit areas, could not happen within that 45 minutes of time. They were so concerned about what was next and what was due and, or not at all and saying, I'm failing, so I'm just going to pull away and, and just not engage. Um, we tried um, doing um, individual classes with teachers, special ed teachers. That didn't work. We had specialized caseloads. So my caseloads were for students with emotional disabilities other caseloads weren't working with that. So that, again, was very siloed in terms of the work we were doing. We tried pushing in. Many of us know and, we, and we're trained in the push-in, pull-out model. So again, in a classroom with other students, gen ed students who were uh, moving along, how could I do that level of specialized instruction these students really need to be on par with their peers? And it's not just special ed students that we're working with in terms of this model. We are working with all students that have those significant deficits. So we tried for about 15 years, lots of different models. And so we finally said, let's stop. Let's look at the research. And we did do the, we reviewed the national uh, reading conference uh, document in terms of the status of reading and looked at the pillars of instruction that we really needed to focus on. And then we decided we really needed a systematic sequential methodology that was um, consistent between our grades kindergarten right up through 12th grade. We selected a curriculum. We trained everyone so we could have the same language in elementary schools as we did in secondary. And then, we're, then we thought about, okay, now we have the professional knowledge. Where does it happen? How do we create the environment? How do we make sure students feel that they have a setting that shows that respect? And that's when Julie Brown came on our team. And Julie, maybe you could talk about what you created in your space. Well, our whole department worked together to create um, a structured literacy programming that included structured literacy classes, a structured writing class. We, the structure of our program is we found um, grouping students by what they're ready to learn versus their grade level. We teach great students grade seven through 12. So small groups of four to six students, our courses are credit bearing. So most often they're an English elective. It's important to have um, credit for your work in high school. They're most often in addition to, not instead of, regular English class. And our classroom, like Sherry said, is right in the middle of things. Um, over the years, we've crafted a program that focuses on two main areas, which are providing effective instruction, yes, but also intentionally fostering authentic connections between peers and their wider community. And I know that sounds kind of simple, but if implementation were so simple, we <laughs> wouldn't have 30% of our 12th graders scoring below basic 
on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So figuring out this model of how to create a program that made meaningful differences in the lives of our students was something we had to kind of create as we went, and we're excited to share with you more about it. And I think what Julie has done so wonderfully is that her students enter a classroom at the beginning of the year. She talks about why has it been so hard for them to learn since the beginning? What is unique about them that our typical literacy and curriculum doesn't meet their needs, helping them understand themselves as learners, um, understanding what is happening in the brain that makes it so difficult. So I think she's lifted the veil on illiteracy and understood. So this is something we can do. And she has become their partner. She will always say, we have the same goals. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to give up on you. And her classroom is right in the middle of the hallway. Kids are not getting pulled in. They're like leaving their peers and they're walking, you know, doing the walk of shame to somewhere else. They are going to a scheduled class. They're with, you know, older students, younger students. They are doing really meaningful reading, reading that's typical of other middle school and high school students. It's not that book that looks, oh, it's not age appropriate. Um, And they're doing really meaningful community-based activities where they are connecting with the broader community like any other English class. And so they don't feel different. They feel like I have someone who cares for me, has similar goals, and I'm going to move forward with them. Yeah, I love that. I just am imagining my, you know, I had 10 years of middle school. I'm imagining my middle schoolers and I could, I could see if this was not handled well, right? That the first questions would be, why am I in this class? Right. Am I, am I stupid? I don't want to be here. Right. This, those could definitely be (laughs) the reactions that you get from students. So I love that the first thing that you all do is not necessarily jump into content day one, right. But have those conversations about why they are there and, the reality of, you know, it's, it's not their fault. It's what <laughs> the education that they received up until that point. And I'm imagining you talk about what, what's going to happen in this class and how it's different. So I just love that you all really thought through that and didn't just throw them in a class and say, get going. <laughs> and I think that evolved too. Again, we didn't have this special sauce figured out the first time around. And Julie <laughs> will be the first one to share. First year was hard, but I think what sh- she never gave up. There were some students who presented some very challenging behaviors, but she created a culture of, I'm not going to give up on you. I am going to create an atmosphere where you can be vulnerable and I'm going to allow you the space to do that work. And that cha- and we have students who move into the district that have never known us and don't know this is a safe place. We have students that, again, who have failed in so many ways, but she's been a great person to create that. And now that she's doing some other work, making sure that that programming continues, no matter who the teacher is. That's important. I think it's amazing that you attended to the student first and their their emotional needs. I think kids are so smart. Kids know when they're struggling with something. They know when we're trying to pull one over on them. And I mean, even just like even the young, like younger children, they know. And when they're alone with that, it feels scary. But when we can explain it to them, it feels so much better. It's making me think about our uh, recent conversation we had with Jan Hasbrook. And she said, I always like to explain to students what I'm doing with them and what's happening here and why we're doing this. And it's just 
oftentimes we miss that step. And that, I think, at the secondary level is even more important to remember and to put first and to de-shame and to make those connections. And when kids feel connected, you can get so much more out of them. So I know we're going to talk a whole lot more about those pieces. Um, But I'm wondering if you can, maybe Julie, you can, can step in and talk a little bit about what did work instructionally. I know you have two focal points, as you call them, which is really clear. Um, but maybe we can dive into what those two focal points are. I know you mentioned them, but just reiterate again, and then um, really diving into that first one uh, so that we can get a grip on what the effective instruction looks like. Absolutely. So to clarify, before we go further, our structured literacy classes are for students with word level deficits in reading. No one is saying that reading ends with reading words, but you can't read for meaning if you can't read the words. And frankly, you may be just about to turn 18, right? So there's no time to waste. Because our classes are in addition to, not instead of, their core instruction, we can dial in to what it is that's holding them back and preventing them from accessing their curriculum independently. Um, So... Julie, that, that's like what strikes me. And thank you for naming that first. And sorry to interrupt that you're doing it in addition to. So they still have the opportunity. You're not like pausing all of the knowledge building, vocabulary, fluency practice. They're doing that stuff still at grade level with grade level texts and tasks. You are supporting them by filling, backfilling deficits in this additional space. So kudos. I am so excited. I can't wait to hear more. (laughs) And that speaks to the professionalism and the colleagueship in our department and in our school, where we really do try and wrap around our students to support their literacy and emotional needs um, very holistically. So you're asking about what does instruction actually look like? So, okay, well, when we started, I would say there was some good news and some bad news. And the good news is we didn't need to reinvent what good instruction looks like. We just needed to trust the decades of research around reading development. We know that if you're 7, 17, or 77, you need to master the same set of skills in roughly the same order to emerge as a pattern seeker, meaning maker, to be a proficient reader. So that part was somewhat straightforward. What are we going to teach? Well, we're going to teach, if our students have deficits, we're going to teach phonemic awareness, phonics, and fluency so that they can access text. Um, But the challenging part was what this work looks like in a high school, what this work looks like with students who um, are bigger than you. (laughs) So, Ultimately, structured literacy isn't something that we do to or offer to our students. It's something that we engage in with our students. So as Sherry explained, we make sure they feel safe and respected and a sense of community in our class. And once we reach that point, instruction really starts to take off. So the Typical lesson includes just what you might imagine. We hear words, we say words, we spell words, we read words and use words. 
Our students, again, have word level deficits in reading. We focus in on that and put it together in connected text. And our instruction is really focused on bringing them this knowledge explicitly. Uh, so Anita Archer, um, Archer and Hughes explicit instruction has really guided our work and we maximize our students' opportunities to respond and we plan for success. Um, students need to feel success at every step of the lesson every day. So we plan purposefully for that and it's okay to go down to their foundational skill deficit and teach them and build them up from there. And as they're experiencing success, they become very invested in the work and in supporting each other in their work. Julie, can I ask a yeah, quick question? Please do. Jump in before yes. you keep going. Yep. Um, so I'm just curious about, you said they you work in groups of four to six students. Do you all do an assessment of some sort beforehand to find out roughly who would go with whom for which purpose? Can, tell us how that works. <laughs> so often our students are identified through some sort of process. The e educational support team might come together. Um, an individualized education plan might be written with word level um, skills on it, such as phonemic awareness or phonics um, or fluency. Um, sometimes students come to us from AP English where they aren't able to read fast enough to keep up. And we and the first thing that you check for is fluency. It's the easiest thing to, to check and rule out. So let's read together. How are you doing with, with this text? And if the student is struggling with their fluency, with their prosody and expression, then we start to look a little deeper. What is the cause of disfluent reading? Is it that there's just some letter combinations that you don't know? Is it that you have low phonemic awareness and could use some support there? Is it that you just need more high quality guided practice reading out loud with someone? Often what we'll find is students don't know what sounds the letters represent. And students can't pull words apart into their individual phonemes and blend them together to make words and build meaning as they read. I think what's important too, and Julie will share is that we're not grouping by age, we're grouping by skills. And so because of the assessments that Julie does, she's able to identify groups of students who are working on the same needs. And so she'll have students that are in eighth grade with students who are juniors in high school. And that's okay. So we'll group them um, by what they're ready to learn. So if, you, if, we have a group of, um, if we have a group of students that are really at the beginnings of phonemic awareness and phonics, they're ready to learn the same things together and celebrate their successes in community rather than hide even in a small group. Mm -hmm. If we have a group of students in front of us that year that are really ready to work on fluency, we're gonna focus in on putting miles on the page and use every minute that we can to build their foundational skills. Because again, we want them to be able to access their education independently. This course allows them the time to work on those. I love that. Can I just comment real quickly? Because I often get a question about what assessment to use. And people always want like a, you know, the magic bullet assessment that's going to give, you know, pr print out some report that's going to tell you everything. So I love that your first thing you said to do, Julie, was have them read to you. 
and listen. Yeah. And um, so for Magic Bullet, we would do, or Magic Wand, we would do Brzezinski's Multidimensional Fluency Rubric. That is going to look at not just words correct per minute, but their prosody and phrasing and accuracy as they read. And then we use that rubric with our students. They use it to reflect on their own reading. They use it to give each other feedback on each other's reading. That's such a window into what's happening in terms of comprehension in their brain. So that I bet that's like such an incredible experience for the teachers to be able to hear how students are comprehending out loud as they're reading. I know I always appreciated that when I taught fifth grade. It was I always said it was one of the most intimate experiences I could have with a student. And it was the the short one of the shortest and fastest ways I could get to know if they what like what what they needed in terms of like where I needed to dive in more to find out more information. It was I think Jan Hasbrook, Melissa said it was like a um what is it like a temperature check a at the doctor. <laughs> so we spend at least a third of every lesson reading connected text in pairs to each other uh, out loud. And we'll use, you know, we'll often have a focus for our reading. So remember, this is a new We've added a new skill. We're focusing on accuracy today. Or you might have a pair that are really ready to work on this text with fluency. And it's that reading out loud and being vulnerable, I think, that draws us together in community. Because when you're vulnerable and you put yourself out there to read out loud, knowing it's challenging and you're respected and um, rewarded in a way, that you're understanding what you're reading for the first time, you're feeling that success, that brings people together and builds a sense of belonging. Our students come into the classroom. We always start a lesson with a handshake and a connection. And I do like to have routines that keep things flowing. I know your listeners um, would be interested in what is actually happening. And I'll say we follow roughly the Reading League's six-step lesson plan. Our students come in their agendas on the board, they grab their resources, they sit down and we get started. We do phonemic awareness exercises, mostly with letters, and we focus on almost three things at once that way, with handwriting, phonemic awareness, and sound symbol knowledge. We do so much word chaining and Alconan boxes of phoneme, graphene, mapping, pulling words apart, blending words together, blending sounds together. Uh, we do dictation pages. We do oral reading out loud. And we follow age-appropriate themes, depending on the year. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to ask you. <laughs> How do you make that something that these middle schoolers and high schoolers feel comfortable doing and don't feel like it's baby work, as they might say. <laughs> well, we have a lot of fun with it. And the most powerful thing that has helped us get over that fear that this isn't age appropriate is we have our graduates come in and speak to our current students. And if you're in middle school and you have um, a star hockey uh, champion heading off to college coming in to tell you, you guys are so lucky that you're in this class. It really helped me. Here's my notebook. I had this exact lesson. Stick with it and trust your teacher in the process. That makes all the difference in the world. For our young people to have examples of kids just like them in their high school 
happy about their reading, proud of their reading, thrilled that they can call themselves a structured literacy graduate has made all the difference for our program. So I think that's how we use uh, peers to help break that ice at the beginning of the year. They, our graduates will come in and talk to our current students, sort of like an interview. We'll have sort of 21 questions in a basket that the students write. And my graduates will come in and read the questions. And it's a little bit of a formal way to break the ice. And then we have an open door policy where they'll graduates come in and play soft C and soft G cahoots with us, for example. They'll come in and play word bingo. They'll come in and say, hey, I just wrote a creative writing piece. I'm really excited to share it with you. Would you guys like to hear it? Yes, we'd like to hear it. So that peer connection is the secret sauce, as Sherry Sousa would say. I love that. I I actually think it might be, I know that like I felt a little surprised when you named how long your students were reading for fluency. I'm wondering, can we dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. And I mean surprised in like a good way. So mm-hmm. <laughs> so as far as a third of every lesson is reading out loud? Yeah, maybe a little bit about yeah. why and what exactly happens. Because I think the other stuff is is very clear, right? Like there's you know, we're, we're doing dictation. That looks like dictation. We're, mm-hmm. you're filling in um, foundational skills gaps. You're using the Alconan boxes. That's, that stuff is pretty clear. But I'm wondering, like, to me, the part that if I were a listener, I'd be like, oh, I want to really know more about this thing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Well, we do a lot of partner reading. So they turn and read with a shoulder partner. It's at the end of a structured literacy lesson. So if the students are still working on accuracy, our reading will be a decodable text. If they're reading accurately, they'll do a decodable text to practice the pattern they just learned and something else, we'll get to that. So the, the habit, we, we talk about it first, we don't just drop it on them, but I'll say, you know, we're gonna read this together as a class and in a week or two, you guys are gonna be ready to start reading in pairs. And just to prepare them that they know this is coming and I'm with them. And if you would like for me to be your partner, let's start there. And we will set an intention for our reading. So like I said, it might be that it's slowing down reading for accuracy. It might be reading for phrasing and prosody. It might be reading for like the whole package fluency. Uh, Sometimes I'll set a timer. So I'll set a timer for, say, eight minutes. Ready, go. And they'll turn and take turns reading. We've got the echo reading and the choral reading. And the timer will go off. So they'll see. So we build up. Eight minutes seems to be a magic number where to start. And then we stop and we talk about it. I'm so impressed. Look at the work that you just did. You put that together. You resisted that urge to predict and read just what was on the page. What did you guys notice? What did you learn? And then another cycle of eight minutes and slowly you build it up where you're reading authentic texts for at least 20 minutes with your partner. I love that. And just to kind of stamp, you're not speed reading in those eight minutes. They're reading, they're reading authentically, correct? Yep. We'll read slowly and accurately. We don't, (laughs) we don't uh, measure words correct per minute very frequently in our class. 
we know that adolescent emerging readers, their fluency is going to be the final frontier, if you will. First, as you mentioned, Jan Hasbrook, first, as Dr. Hasbrook would say, accuracy is first, foremost, and forever the foundation for fluency. So really, they know that quote. It's on our board, and we really work towards that accuracy. Another thing we do is we watch a Senate testimony. A wonderful advocate and actor, Amir um, Baraka, gave Senate testimony. It's about six minutes long about the First Step Act. And he talks about his challenges with reading in middle school. And he talks about crime and incarceration and finally coming to reading. And our students are blown away by his story. And then we watch it again. And I'll say, now I would like you to notice how is Amir reading? And they, every year we do this and they notice the same things. Oh, he's connecting with the text. He's following along with his finger. He's tapping out the syllables. <laughs> he has Sally, uh, Sally Shaywitz, I believe this is, right next, I hope I'm not missing a, who, who that, a researcher, right next to him in case he needs help. Several times he stops himself from predicting and reads just what's on the page. He taps out, oh, I mentioned, he taps out the syllable. So the students notice that themselves. And here's this um, strong, successful man using these strategies that they're practicing to find success in their class. And so that gives us an example of what fluent reading looks like and what it sounds like for them as they're emerging as readers. I love that, Julie. We yeah. have we have Amir on our list to ask to be on the podcast. Oh. So <laughs> we, I, have to, I have to watch that video. <laughs> so I, I, I know that's what I was Twitter. going to say. Can you send it to us? Oh, uh, yes, I can. So I joined Twitter because Dr. Hasbrook told us to in at the end of the webinar. <laughs> Join Twitter. I said, okay, I'll try. And then um, I I sent Amir, I tweeted him some work from our class of students reflecting on Amir's story and his success. Oh and he tweeted back to us and we were just so <laughs> So powerful. Yeah. <laughs> but again, that speaks to giving them examples of success. Yeah. In real life, in right? Real life. This is real. It's not yep. made up. Yep. yep. And my students will say, um, I asked one young man, if you could say anything to educators interested in adolescent literacy, what would you tell them? And he said, the first thing educators need to do is make sure their students know it's going to be okay. And that doesn't just happen. That requires careful, thoughtful planning from a teacher who has the time and space to do this important work. Because they've tried, they've been trying to read for decades. Not decades, at least, you know, up to a decade where they come in, they've had 10 years of intervention that hasn't worked. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like a great transition, Julie, to Sherry. I, I can't imagine how much, how many things needed to go into making this happen. There were a lot of things to consider off the top of my head. I'm thinking scheduling. <laughs> I mean, curriculum, yeah, how do you credits. get credit at the high school level, <laughs> um, teachers, uh, training. I mean, we could keep going. So I'm wondering if you would like to take some time to share like, very practically, how did you support making this amazing work happen? 
<laughs> well, I think, it, you know, the heavy lifting was as heavy as it sounds. It was having conversations with individual teachers and administrators to say, how can we expect these students to be successful in your class if they can't access the curriculum? How can we ask them to write a five paragraph essay when they don't know how to put the first word down and they can't spell the words? And recognizing taking a five paragraph essay and say, you just do a couple sentences and you still can participate. That's so humbling. That is so insulting. And so I think it, it took some conversations with, um, with teachers for them to realize, wow, how can I, I need to make space if we are truly going to meet the expectations of, of us as teachers in terms of graduating literate um, individuals. And, and I talked to Julie, there are many times I sat at graduation and I saw students walking across the stage and I knew they couldn't read and write and how horrible that made me feel and how much of a failure as an educator. And so bringing that back to our teachers um, we, you know, in middle school, it's easy. You don't have to have credits for graduation. So let's take two years and let's say, let's really focus it on those deficit skills so that when cre credits are needed, we can make that happen. And so depending upon what the skills or the level of the need is, they're going to do structured literacy, literacy instead of their uh, seventh grade English class. Let's build that success. Let's give them those skills. And so what often happens, if, if that's the case, by the time we enter ninth grade, they are in ninth grade English and they're, they're doing structured literacy. And Julie's shown us the data, usually one to two years and sometimes three years. We are on par. Students are able to access students who, you know, I, I know these students well. I was the special ed director where evaluations came from hospitals saying, your child will never read. Do not, they may not even graduate from high school, who are now, after working with Julie in structured literacy, are in AP English classes and they're planning for their college future. And so we can turn that table. And, and I think success breeds more success. Teachers are seeing, you know, that group of students who were in the back of the classroom, not turning in work, acting out, finding ways to get out of the classroom, now have the entry level tools to be a member of the class and conversation. How that changes the demeanor of the student, their presentation, their commitment to their learning. Um, it addresses truancy issues. It addresses so many pieces of what we see for school failure. Um, you know, we talk about in our district that when I came on as special ed director, we had about 17, 18% uh, special education across the district. When we provided our special education teachers with the skill set and saw ourselves as learning specialists, not as homework hotel monitors, we were able to move our special ed numbers to about 11%. And so that's what happens when you have the right level of specialized instruction and the right environment. And students are, you know, we say being on an IEP is not a life sentence. Our job is to make sure the schools have the skills. We address those skills needs. We move them on. We, you know, we have productive. And I've seen Julie Brown at graduation with a bunch of boys who are towering over her, giving her hugs, bringing her flowers, in one case, smoking a cigar with her. Um, but they, <laughs> they love her. They love her. And they know she gave them the key to a lifetime of success. So I think that that success, seeing those transformations, made our administration and our teachers incredibly supportive of this program and just as proud as we are of these students succeeding.
I know I was looking the other way when the cigar came out because I'm, I'm just looking at it now. <laughs> yeah. To know our students, to know them really is to love them. They are incredibly <laughs> brave people. They are wonderful young people. And it's not just the literacy piece that uh, lends to their success. It's the, the whole package where we have teachers that respect their efforts, want to know about their reading. We have directed studies for them to practice applying their skills in other contexts. We really teach them as a department the skills they need to succeed. And when you teach, they learn. So many of our questions we get really center around, how do you get the kids to walk in the door? I am here to tell you, I've not met a single young person who doesn't desperately want to learn to read well. Yeah. And I love, I love just hearing, there's so much mindset shifting that I hear across everything you all are talking about with the students, right? Shifting that mindset of like them feeling like they're a failure to, I can change this, right? We can change it and we can move it. But also Sherry, you talking, it feels like a mindset shift for the district of like, these things are a priority, right? Like some things are going to have to take a backseat until our students know how to read and write, <laughs> Period. Well, and, and, and thank you, Melissa, for highlighting that. Something that we're working on right now is developing a district-wide policy on teaching and learning, which really captures our dedication to foundational skills for all students. And then making sure that as a school board, as a community of educators and families, we will begin with foundational skills. Because when we don't, we are not going to provide the students with the kinds of learning and experience and future that we know is possible. And so that those foundational skills, opportunities for deeper learning, commitments to um, how we see ourselves as educators. Um, we've done lots of professional development, in, but until the policy is in place that we can stand on and say, this is who we are and what we're going to do, it becomes not just a special ed program or a 504 program, all learners. And for us as a district belonging and all learners are all learners. And you may come in reading, but that doesn't guarantee you have the foundational skills. You know, you, you may have come in from a family that has lots of experiences, but that does not define you or, or predict whether you're going to be what your future is. And so all means all. And our policy now that is about to be passed by our district affirms that commitment, that literacy uh, reading, writing, mathematics is our core uh, uh, focus in the beginning years of a student's life experience. And what we're seeing is that we're continuing, even with COVID pandemic, our special education numbers have really remained at that lower level. And so because we're at pre-K, elementary school, onto secondary, we all have the same focus. Love that. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is often a, a an excuse, if I'm being honest, that um, I hear. And I just feel like there's not really a need for that excuse. We know how to do it. Mm -hmm. We can fill in the gaps and we can do it. And I, I really just love like both of you have a, you tried different things. You were like, this worked. I'm imagining along the way you took little pieces of each thing you tried mm -hmm. and you just really have a no nonsense approach to this. You're like, our students deserve better. I can't sit here and allow myself one more day to watch a student walk across the stage that I know is unable to read and write. And you did something about that. And it's so inspirational. And it's so, I don't want to say easy, but like, we can do this is the message that I'm getting from you. Like, we can do it. It's 
doable. It's practical. It's we should do it. (laughs) There's no reason not to do it. (laughs) And and it it, it didn't cost us huge amounts of money. We reshifted caseloads and we said, okay, I'll take a few more of your students. We'll take a few more. And Julie, you will do all their specialized instruction and reading. So that took the responsibility off the other case managers who were helping in executive functioning and the other tasks that needed to be done. And that serious work was having in one space. So it didn't increase any of our costs. And we made sure that we had highly trained teachers and we used our grant funding for that. Um, you know, we're a very small rural district. We only have a thousand students. We have five elementary schools and one middle school and high school of 450. We don't have a lot of resources and we're in Vermont. So it's not we're a suburb and it's very affluent. We really are struggling with the same financial challenges as all districts. What do you have for resources? What are your priority needs? Reappropriating those resources. It did not, I mean, the curriculum materials we use, I mean, from talking to writing, it was a $20 textbook that we read. I mean, if this is not a huge financial shift, that should not be an obstacle. And so we really made sure that was true. And success breeds success. We know uh, that that's true for students, but it's true for school systems as well and teachers. So we've you know, every year as we're graduating students off of individualized education plans, as we're preventing identification of disabilities by working with students who have deficits to teach them what they need to know, this is so empowering to see the work work. We're just a, a, in a little corner of central Vermont. It's such a, an honor to be able to share our story. And we do hope that in our story, your listeners hear themselves. Sherry's refrain is always, why not? Why not engage in this work? Why not get started? Why not work on developing colleagueship amongst your department to solve this problem together? Do we trust the research? Do we really, really believe that 90, 95% of our students can be taught to read well? Do we believe that? If we do, there's, there's no reason why not to do this one. So Julie, you mentioned success. We want to give you some time to, to brag. Sherry, jump in too. But we want, we want to hear about your results from, from this program. Um, I know you might have some qualitative data as well to share with us as quantitative. <laughs> you know, it mostly is qualitative. So our students graduate from our class and go on to be teaching assistants in English class. They go on to their dream class of AP history. They go on to college. They go to trade school. They can access their education independently and all the agency and dignity that that brings to their life and to their families. It it changes. um, Dr. Whedon talks about how literacy can change the family tree. So with a little bit more statistics, we've had 53 students just Just looking at students with individualized education plans, we have many students that don't. But one little sub-step, right? There's many ways to measure success. Uh, About 65% of our graduates with an IEP have had a chance to go through that three-year reevaluation process. The rest are uh, awaiting the process or graduated before they had a chance. But of our reevaluated graduates, 65% have exited special education entirely, and 90% no longer qualify for a reading disability. None in basic reading, but one or two uh, or three in reading comprehension or fluency. 
So when we when we gathered up that data, we were pretty amazed. So when students first started graduating off of IEPs and off of their educational support team plans, I thought it was a fluke. But then the next year it happened again. And the next year it happened again. And during COVID, we're picking up speed. We had 75% of our reevaluated students exit special education entirely. During COVID? Well, after it, uh, the, the three years, uh, 1920, 2021, 20, yeah, the three school yeah. years, yes. So we right. had 12 students. Our numbers are That's small. Amazing. We had 12 students really struggling. Our students often come in below the first percentile in reading. That is not unheard of. When you dial down, you realize their phonemic awareness and basic sound symbol knowledge is what's preventing them from accessing print. So I lost my train of thought. Oh, so during COVID. So we had 12 students graduate off of their IEP. Sorry, 12 students graduate from structured literacy and nine of them exited special education entirely. It's it's just astounding. Like, I mean, take... throw the numbers away in terms of like, if they're small or large or whatever it might be, it's, it's provable that this is scalable, Absolutely. right? This is, it's scalable, yeah. but there's, a, there's not much research showing on a large scale that this work can be done. And Sherry and I think the reason is folks are leaving out that building belonging piece and focusing mm. only on the intervention. These students deserve a champion I am able to say to them, I am with you. We're going to walk this together. We're going to figure it out until you reach your goals. I am with you. I could really only promise that to them because Sherry made that promise first. And our whole department coming together to support our students uh, has made all the difference. Providing them with peer, you know, support where they see what success looks like. They know that it's within reach. They know it's going to be okay. That's the missing piece. Also, the small groups. For us, that is essential. This isn't a one-on-one pullout. It's a group of students that form a community and help each other reach their goals together. Right. And I think what's important is that even, you know, it's interesting that even with the high level of skills of our special educators at the elementary level, um, they had fewer opportunities to to bring students together. And so they were using the one on one model, maybe one or two students delivering, you know, systematic sequential instruction with fidelity. It wasn't until they came to Julie's class in middle school where we're talking four to six, maybe more developmentally appropriate that they began to see those real successes. And these were some students with really significant language-based learning disabilities, organic. This was not a lack of instruction. This was really based on organic dyslexia. We were successful. Those students who I knew really well moved off an IEP. It's just phenomenal. And it, it, and it didn't take a lot. It really isn't. There is no, you know, there's no silver bullet, but it's a commitment. It's an understanding and it's a passion for secondary. And I don't know, when I was in grad school, no one wanted to do secondary special education. They had to, and I went to school in Tucson, Arizona, big school district. 
I was the only one who wanted to do, they couldn't even find a place for me to do student teaching because like no one wants to do secondary. And I think you have to find those individuals that are that committed to middle school and secondary like Julie, who can see the joy and, and energy and, and feed off of that. And she has really embraced this, this student population. They're quirky. I like the quirky. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, secondary kids are. <laughs> well, Julie, I know you had mentioned uh, that you might have a college essay uh, to share with us, a student who wrote about structured literacy. Would you... Do you have it? Would you like to share it? Do we have time? I guess you wouldn't ask if we didn't. Yeah. I mean, if you're okay with staying on a few extra minutes. Sherry, are you okay? Okay. So this is an essay that this particular student, I just saw a month or two ago after her fourth semester of college, third semester of college, excuse me, who almost half of our students come from out of district. This student joined in her sophomore year walked into our class, looked around, three young men reading, and she didn't know what was happening. She was nervous, apprehensive, wondering. And it took her two weeks to settle in to tell her first story. She struggled with reading for quite a while. And the first thing she talked about in our class was... Mrs. Brown, what even is this class? No one ever taught me to look at words like this. My younger sibling, I wish they could be here with me. They really need this too. And two years later, she graduated from structured literacy. So we still talk about those first few weeks at Woodstock High School and that first story she told. Here's an excerpt from her application shared with permission. Ever since kindergarten, I could tell I was different. My reading level was always lower than everyone else's. The school thought I would grow out of it and they didn't see the need to test my reading. First grade was different. I was still struggling and my mom had the school test me to see if I had to go into a reading class. This was just the start of my struggles. She goes on to retell stories and trials and tribulations from grade school and middle school. I moved before my sophomore year and it was probably the best thing that has happened to me. At this point, I was just giving up on school, but I was determined not to be known as a high school dropout. So I gave this school one more chance. I was blessed with the best reading class I could ever ask for and a teacher who never gave up on us. Structured literacy helped me become fluent and confident with what I was reading. It gave me hope that I could obtain a higher education rather than just finishing high school. I struggled with reading for so long, and I'm so glad I was able to get real help before I gave up. Going through this showed me that having a reading disability doesn't mean I'm any less of a student. And P.S., her younger sibling graduated from structured literacy class too. And I think that's a great illustration of what many of our students feel. They find success, they find dignity and agency in their education, and they go on to independently access their education. So powerful. I mean, not only becoming a a reader, but the things that she mentioned in there, the confidence, the hope, the (laughs) self-worth that all of that gave her. I mean, that is the humbleness to admit 
find, like, I'm so glad I got help. Right. I mean, how, what powerful lessons we're teaching young students. It's never too late to learn new things. It's never too late to, even if it's something I've been struggling with for a long time, I can learn how to do it. There are people out there who are willing to help me and I can trust people and it'll, it'll help me in the future. And I just heard so many things in that. I'm, thank you for sharing that, Julie. I was tearing up. So I was crying. <laughs> she, like all of our graduates, are incredibly special. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. I, That's beautiful. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you to, for that student who wrote that. Thank you for giving your all to a student so that they could write that. Yeah, and thank you both for giving your time today to share with our audience and for everything you're doing. Um, and I know you're sharing not just with our podcast, but with on other webinars and conferences. And we just please keep keep going because other people need to hear what you're doing and that it can be done. Well, thank you for the invitation and the forum, please. Oh, what an honor. Thank you so much for having us. And on a on a on a last note, I would just like to remind folks that this is urgent work and it can feel heavy and there's so many problems to solve, but it's joyful work and get started and get in there for your young people. It's the most purposeful, joyful work there is. Hear, hear. <laughs> Thank you both so much for this joyful Thank work you. you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.